Welcome to the Go Ye Forth podcast, where we hear inspiring stories from returned missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who have served all across the globe. I am your host, Jason Bringhurst. Hello, everyone. We are back with a new episode. On today's show, I speak with Dennis Conforto. Dennis is an author, a keynote speaker, an investor. He has founded multiple businesses. He invented the UPC code and so much more that we just can't get into with the scope of this podcast. But we do talk to Dennis about his service as a full-time missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the New York City mission from 1973 to 1975. I think that you're going to enjoy his incredible story. And in my missionary minute, I talk about carrying on. So let's get to it. Well, welcome to the show, Dennis Conforto. I'm so happy to have you on the show. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So we were introduced uh, by our mutual friend, Dave Johnson, and I got to hear a little bit about your story, just enough to have me kind of on the edge of my seat to hear more. <laughs> and I know uh-huh. that there's a lot to unpackage, but let's get to know you a little bit. Uh, uh, where, where are you originally from? Uh, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard uh, uh, I, I'm originally from the pre-existence. We'll start there. <laughs> Good point. Um, yeah, I, I think in, in today's society, it, it's getting harder and harder to say where uh, someone is from because right. our societies are so um, mobile. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I, you know, by a set of, of, of circumstances, a, a very unusual set of circumstances, I was, born in uh san diego uh spent a small time of my childhood in salt lake Mm -hmm. then my young childhood in on the streets of south philadelphia the italian section of south philly wow and then my teenage uh young teenage years in uh, seattle washington uh being raised by my grandparents okay and where are you now? I, I am now in a small farming community called uh, Parma, Idaho, on the Idaho-Oregon border, nestled against the Snake River. Oh, beautiful. Well, were you uh, raised in the church then? Um, I, was, I was half raised in the church and half raised uh, – I was half Mormon and half Catholic because of my – uh, parents, uh, very separate religions. Mm, I was okay. born in, uh, San Diego because, uh, uh, my mom who was going to get married to a fellow on the day that she was supposed to get married to her, he married somebody else. Mm. And she was pregnant and she had two brothers that paid to send her to, to Tijuana to abort, uh, which turned it would have been the abortion of me. And then uh, she couldn't cross the border. She didn't want to cross the border. She, she just felt like she couldn't, couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Went to the side pier to take her life. And two Marines, you know, coaxed her over, uh, oh, off the railing and took her to 
the Good Shepherd's Inn run by the Salvation Army, where I was born on May 15th, 1952. Wow. And one of the Marines that saved her was um, named Joseph Conforto. That's how I got my name. Mm. And Conforto means comforter in Italian mm-hmm. and comes from orphan in Sicily for uh, children who did not have parents. They were named uh, Conforto or Comforter, you were supposed to comfort them because they didn't have uh, parents. So hmm. that's sort of how huh. how my life uh, started. So I, you know, and, and as a result, I developed a lot of, of opinions about a lot of the upheaval we see in, in our society today about life and the uh, sanctity and sacredness of of life and the mm-hmm. human tragedy that surrounds uh, surrounds all of it, which is why missionary work is so important because people are faced with, you know, really life altering situations that affect generations to come, right. and that they make have big impacts in their personal lives and the lives of their family and friends, and then really ultimately on society. Mm-hmm. So it, it just turns out that the smallest decisions that we um, have in life are really the biggest ones. We don't, we don't think about them because they're so small and, and significant mm-hmm. uh, or insignificant. And yet a lot of the things that make up our lives are, you know, just the casual decision that I'm going to turn left down a hallway instead of right. And I run into somebody or we run into somebody or a person runs into somebody and that, event changes their whole life, who they yeah. marry, you know, it, it, it's just, and then you look at all of that. And if you can place it against time and the arc of time, you begin to see um, the hand of God in so many things that mm-hmm. we just casually observe as just uh, a nothing event that actually changed the course of history. So you, you somehow find yourself, uh, homeless at age 18. How, how did you end up on the streets? Well, my, my, uh, my grandmother was married to her ninth husband and he was born in 1892. Uh, he didn't expect to inherit a grandson. Mm-hmm. I, I was sent on a train by myself when I was seven years old from Philadelphia to, uh, Seattle and uh, and the culture shock of Philadelphia to Seattle was big. The yeah. culture shock living with parents to grandparents was another culture shock. Being an only child then and being separated from my uh, brother and sister then became another um, shock. And uh, I went from a kind of a mixed religion home where Catholicism and Mormonism were the same religion. I, I actually had no idea there were two different religions. <laughs> I had combined both of them, and you know, and I always felt I was the smartest kid my age about my religion because the Mormon kids didn't know anything about, you know, um, Saint Sebastian, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, my Catholic friends knew nothing about the golden plates and the angel Moroni. And because all one thing to me, it was, 
it, uh, you know, I just kept walking around like, why am I the only one that understands how this all works? You know, there's <laughs> two guys that are running everything. There's the, there's the prophet in Salt Lake and the Pope in Rome, and they both begin with a P. <laughs> so why don't, it's so easy to figure out, you know? But the big thing that broadsided my life was my grandfather was a gardener and everything in, in life was about you work for what you get. Mm-hmm. And he explained to me very quickly at seven years old, I had to pay rent. I didn't know what rent was. I had to buy my own clothing. I didn't know how to do that. I had to buy my own food. I, I, I had no idea. And he, because he was a gardener, I think he was cutting 10 lawns a week. But for me to be able to live with him, he upped it to 36 lawns a week, mm-hmm. which meant that, you know, I would go to school and then I would start cutting uh, cutting lawns. And, uh, so that had a big impact on me. Anyway, in my senior year in high school, I'd saved enough money to pay for living with my grandparents in my senior year. And I told him that I did not want to work anymore. I just wanted to have one year of my life that was a normal childhood. And Mm -hmm. he told me, he he was always telling me stuff that he was going to do and then never did it. But he told me that if I did that, that he would kick me out the day I graduated from high school. And I, and I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was kind of a, I got that he was frustrated. Mm. And uh, so I had a great, great senior year. Um, uh, didn't do anything of note. Um, went to a couple of football games, never went on a date. My, my whole <laughs> high school life, I never didn't go to my senior prom because I was too scared, too shy. I was sure somebody would say no anyway. Uh, so, um, the day I graduated, uh, the next morning I got up to cut lawns with him and there was breakfast and my grandmother was crying and my grandfather ate in silence. And then when we got done, I said, let's, what are we going to do today? He says, well, I'm going to cut lawns, but you're gone. And all your stuff is out on the front porch. So I ran into my bedroom and my closet was cleaned out. My dressers were cleaned out. I was Hmm. like shocked. I thought it was a game. And I went outside and there was a trunk and all my, and boxes and all my stuff. And, uh, he shut the door and locked the door. And I banged on that door for two hours pleading for him to let me in. And finally, uh, and he had an envelope there and he had withdrawn, uh, my bank account and put all that cash in an envelope. So I had plenty of cash, but again, I didn't know about apartments. I didn't know about anything. So mm-hmm. I ended up living on the streets of, of Seattle, hiding under a bush in the, sh- in the shadow of a space needle for, uh, a year. I had money to buy my own food, but mm-hmm. I never handled. I never, you know, I didn't talk to almost anybody for a year. None of my friends knew where I was at or what I was um, doing. And in that, at some point in time, I ran out of money and I hadn't eaten for two weeks. And I ended up having a dream that kind of changed my life. The dream is kind of insignificant. Um, but my, uh, one of my sons who, who makes films uh, for the church and, and for Hollywood and so forth, uh, made a short film called Curse is the Ground of my experience of being homeless and this dream that I, I had. And um, because I hadn't eaten for two weeks, 
I was pretty sure I was that I wasn't going to wake up that morning. I was shocked when I woke up and was still alive. And I thought mm. I got to do something. And I decided to walk back home and beg my grandparents to let me back in. And on the way home, I saw a restaurant that said help wanted and uh, went in and applied and was the night manager. And, and that restaurant allowed me to work for two years to save enough money to go on my mission when I was 21. Wow. Just incredible. Had a mission always been in your plans? Well, I was always, I was always a missionary, Mm -hmm. you know, in my youth. I mean, once I, I believed in, in something, you know, I, I shared it all, all the time. And I've, I've always been proud of being a member of the church. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm proud of the church. I'm proud of what it, 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 um, what it, it does and what it accomplishes and what it represents. Um, to me, um, I, I like hanging around members of the church because the core beliefs are, uh, similar about Mm -hmm. accountability. It's that kind of, um, that kind of Mormon pioneer culture that is within the church. And even if you join the church and you're from another culture and another area, once you begin to understand church history, the Mormon pioneers, which I think everybody identifies with where, you know, you have this struggle where you just got like, everything's working against you and you've got to find a place Mm -hmm. where you survive, you you know, in your own mind and, and create your own you know, your own Zion, whatever, uh, it is. Um, so I, in in that, um, kind of in that philosophical, uh, view of the, of the church. And I thought it was so, um, inspired that I shared it. So I had a number of my friends in high school that joined the church as a result of me. And so when I was home, they got sent on missions. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here like I'm the missionary. I brought people in the church. They go on missions and, and all my friends in the church went on missions and I'm sitting at home. So by the time I, um, and I, I was raised in, I went not a particularly wealthy community, but better than most. I, I guess if I look back in time, you know, the, it was a, a ward full of doctors, lawyers, and 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 so forth. Our mm-hmm. family was humble of the of the families, I, I think, or at least in my mind. But I, you know, I had this desire to go on a on a, a mission, and then when I was homeless, I realized that I couldn't. And then when I finally dug myself out of homelessness and started working and saving money, I realized that I could. Um, and, and of course I had a different view of my missionary experience because I was going to be two years older and I was the Mm -hmm. only one that saved their own money to go on a mission. Everybody else, you know, their family, their family made it happen for Mm -hmm. them where with me, I, you know, I had to work for it. I had to really, and, and I really wanted to go. So, and where were you called and what years did you serve? Uh, yeah, so I get my mission uh, paperwork, and I was called to serve in the the Eastern States Mission, which was the 
first mission of the church that Joseph Smith called his brother um, to. In the middle of my mission, it uh, the Eastern States mission name disappeared from the records of the church and was split into several uh, missions. And I ended up in the New York, New York City mission. And what years did you serve? Uh, 1973 to 1975. So then you're off to New York. Uh, what what were your impressions of New York? Well, um, it, it it was shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it it you know it's it's unlike any other city on earth in 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 many ways. Um, it was a combination of a city that was moving at the speed of thought and then moving at the speed of cold tar at the same time. <laughs> it was. I, you would meet a homeless person and then you'd beat one of the wealthiest men on the planet. Uh, you would um, meet uh, people from all different cultures and all different languages. And most people were in a rush and moving very, um, uh, very quickly. When I got on the plane, when I was in high school, you know, I think I was, I was really picked on. Um, I was not, I was not popular, popular at, at all. And I was really quite marginalized. Um, most of my friends in high school knew that was, uh, happening. Nobody really knew how to, you know, how to protect me mm-hmm. from bullies and, and so forth. Um, having the name Dennis didn't help because, uh, you know, it was Dennis the menace and, mm-hmm. and, and I looked up to the name. So uh, I realized that my first name was gone and nobody knew my history. Hmm. Nobody knew that I was an unwanted child. Nobody knew that I was raised by my grandparents. Nobody knew that I was homeless. Nobody knew I was unpopular and unwanted and bullied. And nobody knew anything. And I had a new name, Elder. And I was a new person. And I could now, for the first time in my life, be me. With no baggage, everybody that was going to meet me was going to see the new me. So where I was homeless, going, I was nobody going nowhere. I was now on my mission going to New York, and I was going to be somebody going somewhere. And I was very enthusiastic, and I was sure I was called to go to New York to turn it into the city of Enoch and float it away. <laughs> I love it. Very <laughs> Very, very confident. I, uh, within 15 minutes, I knew that wasn't going to happen because <laughs> I was scurried from the plane by the mission assistants and they wanted us to experience New York right away. And we went to a street meeting, which is like you would see, like, like you would visualize the missionaries in the 1800s going to England, standing on soapbox boxes uh-huh. and I, watch elders stand on park benches and just start talking. Wow. I thought like, whoa, (laughs) that does not look easy. And, you know, and the crowd, you know, people would gather around and it it, it was a three ring circus. It was a, it was an absolute three ring circus. And, and, and then for the first time I realized that this was going to be a lot more difficult. New York was not going to be translated by me. <laughs> um, and my, my uh, efforts 
And I was then transferred from the city to uh, my first area outside of New York City, Wallingford, uh, Connecticut, mm-hmm. where just simple door knocking. In the city, it was illegal to l- knock on doors. You oh, could, there was yeah. that. There was no way. So you had to do street meetings, mm-hmm. and and you would have these panel boards. And you would set up in front of um, in front of monuments like uh, the George Washington Monument on Wall Street, and just set up your panel boards. And it could be the panel boards of Christ coming to America, or the panel boards for for uh, family home evening, and these mm-hmm. things. Full, they you know stood there, and then you'd have to go 150 feet away from the panel boards eye somebody on the sidewalk and just start a conversation with them. And you had 150 feet to turn them to the panel board and hopefully have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's very difficult, to, uh, very difficult to do to just, you know, uh, approach somebody. And that kind of approach, um, it, it was one missionary. There, It wasn't two that walked up. It was one that walked up because mm-hmm. one was sitting by the panel board. So it was, it was very, very challenging. But in, in, um, in Wallingford, I was just doing door knocking on basically a community that was mostly, um, Polish mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, the rejection was magnificent. Mm. <laughs> I, you know, there, there was an art form they had of rejecting people at the, at the, <laughs> at the door. And I, <laughs> I began to do something um, that I don't know that anybody did on their mission, but I did. I I began to develop a a, a kind of a, a report of my mission, and every day I would count the number of doors I knocked on, hmm. the number of discussions I taught, first discussions, second discussions, third discussions, fourth discussions, the number of Book of Mormons I handed out, mm-hmm. pamphlets. Handed out in numbers. It was the first time that I was looking at data, and I began to uh, have this inf- this thing that really changed the course of my life and my business career. But data became important to me because I would look at the data, and it would change my uh, my behavior rather um, rather drastically. Mm. So. I'm probably the only missionary in the church out of the millions that have gone on, on missions that knows that I knocked on 6,782 doors in wow. my two years. <laughs> That's uh, and I knew that that wasn't successful. Yeah. I knew that the percentage of that knocking on doors to the ratio of discussions that I taught was not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. I knew the ratios of the difference in the door approach of Christ coming to America as opposed to family home evening or, you know, the number of different door approaches. I began to... Wow, you're doing A-B testing on on door approaches. (laughs) Right. I, I, I began to validate everything uh with no background Mm -hmm. at all just this this natural thing that that um came to me i knocked on a door one time of a person who said to me uh oh mormon missionaries this is great i tell you what if you can prove to me you know more about the mormon church than i know about the mormon church and i'm not even a mormon 
I, you could baptize me today. And I was so <laughs> excited because I, you know, I was really good in seminary and I, my grandmother every night read, um, um, church books and the book of Mormon and, mm-hmm. and so forth. I mean, by the time I had gone on my mission, I, I had already read the book of Mormon five times or had it read to me. So I, I was quite knowledgeable about church history and he went down a series of, of questions and it happened to be on April 6th. And he said, what happened on April 6th? And I said, oh, well, the church was restored. He asked what year, 1829. He asked what state. I told him what, what, uh, what, what's, state and then he asked what county and i didn't know mm. <laughs> and he goes fayette and he slammed the door and and walked <laughs> <laughs> and i was so frustrated and my at the time the church had ward libraries and my grandmother was a ward librarian and you could mm-hmm. buy you could buy books oh, at the wow. ward so i ordered books for for her and i had two trunks worth of books <laughs> and this that a habit that stayed with me the rest of my life because I read four to eight books a week. I've read mm. around 12,000 um, books. Uh, I got pretty good retention. I don't have a photographic memory or anything, but I got really good um, retention. Yeah. And I started reading at 10 o'clock to two o'clock every night. So wow. you know, nights out or you're supposed to be in bed by 10. I just couldn't sleep. So I had a little flashlight and I would read till two o'clock in the morning and then I would conk out and then I would get up at six and away I would go. And that mm-hmm. developed a habit for the rest of my life where I go to bed at two and I wake up at six and I sleep four hours a, uh, a night uh, uh, generally. And then uh, on this, this reading um, mm-hmm. pro- process. And, uh, and so that, you know, that changed how I also was as a missionary, because with the data, I started changing um, my approach. And one of the th- interesting things I did is every Sunday, of course, I went to my own ward, mm-hmm. but every Sunday I went to the congregation of another church. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So I went to Jewish synagogues. I went to Bible revivals. I went to the Catholic church, the Episcopal church. And, 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 and the reason I did that was because as I was teaching people, people in the family would always be concerned about somebody taking the discussions and, and perhaps becoming a member of the church. And you're going to tear, you're going to tear our family apart. You're going to be a different religion and we're not going to be, you know, this mm-hmm. is, this is stressful. And I wanted to have, I wanted to have an appreciation of everybody else's religion mm-hmm. because uh, as I thought about, about that, you know, how would I feel in my own family of people, you know, you know, leaving the faith, which, right. which I have experienced. And it's, and it's, and it's difficult and it's challenging. And I wanted to be, uh, sensitive. And I knew that I would be a better missionary if I understood their religion as much as I understood my own. So yeah. I, I went, think that's really wise. Yeah. Yeah. I went on this quest. It, after a while, I discovered something that was interesting. Every religion has a series of scriptures that they tie together that forms the basis of their religious belief, mm-hmm. including members of the church. Mm-hmm. We all kind of pick and choose a series of scriptures that we connect together that says, this is the doctrine, this is what we believe, this is what happened, and and so forth. After a while, I could get to a door, and I would just listen to people, and i go, that's an Episcopalian, mm-hmm. that's a Lutheran. 
that's a Catholic. That's a reformed uh, Jew. That's a conservative Jew. That's a Hasidic Jew. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times tell by the way they were um, dressed. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the more I understood about that, the more I pivoted in my religious discussions with them. And I would spend time doing the opposite of what most missionaries were, would do. I would ask them about their religion. Mm-hmm. Asking me, I would ask them and I would figure out pretty quickly that their religious beliefs was a series of traditions. It, it wasn't something that they were particularly passionate about. Eventually there came a, to be a lack of understanding and the gaps of their understanding of their own doctrine. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes I would go to a door and I would knock on a door and say, Hey, you know, my name is Elder Kafora. This is my companion, Elder Burbank. And we would like to t- talk to you uh, a, a little bit about our church. And well, no, I'm sorry, I'm Catholic. Oh, well, that's okay. We're, we can teach you more about the Catholic church, which I would go in and do, hmm. which was different, but yeah. it allowed me, it, it, it allowed me to be able to have a conversation because I didn't care about how I got there. I just wanted to get there and hmm. have the conversation, the conversation allow the conversation, yeah. whatever it, it it was. Um, so in my mind, I quickly understood that there was a difference between selling something and converting somebody to somebody to mm-hmm. something. So if you're selling, you know, you got kind of a set dialogue and a set set of things that you're you're doing, that that's sort of selling. And, and at some point in time, I felt like I was selling religion Mm. and, you know, helping people find God and find, uh, finding a, a higher level of truth than what perhaps they had been exposed to before. Mm -hmm. And it was a very subtle, but very important thing. Now that doesn't mean because you learn the discussions or you're teaching discussions, you're selling your religion because at the end of the day, you got to rely on the, the, the spirit. But I was very, I was very, I was very willing to go out of order in the discussions. Mm-hmm. If somebody wanted, if somebody had a, ser- a question about our belief and I knew I was supposed to start on discussion one, but the answer was in discussion four, I, I would, I would just go to discussion go four, four. Yeah. And, and, and then figure a way to, you know, back it into the right order so that it was so that it lo- logically worked out. This goes yeah. to this Steve Covey, thing seek to understand before you're understood mm-hmm. and and i think that's really more the way the uh the missionaries do it now they you know they have preach my gospel sure. and you can jump in at any point um they need to cover all of the 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 lessons but uh they you know if someone has a an interest in uh you know the the afterlife you know that that's where you start you start where there's interest yeah so in, in my day they they the week that I landed on my mission was the week they came out with this new set of discussions. Mm-hmm. So um, they had a flannel board before and they switched to, a, you know, a pictorial flip chart. Mm-hmm. And then uh, part of my routine is when I went to bed at two o'clock and finally fell asleep, I had a recording of my voice and I would put my earphones on and it would be my, discussions oh wow 
I, because, you know, we had to, we were tested on them all the time. And, you know, I, and my, I, you know, I had them down like 98% were mm. perfect. When I was in front of people, I wouldn't do that. I just knew them well enough. And then I would kind of insert my own um, language and my own cadence into it, very much stuck to the the order of things within the discussions. Uh, and if I needed to, and if I got stuck or couldn't figure out where I was at, I'd just go to my memorized script until I could get back onto my cadence of having a conversation. So can you tell us about some people who you taught? My first really big experience was in Wallingford, Connecticut, and we were going down the street. You know, we, you know, you do the typical thing. You have a prayer. You decide which street you're going to go to, and you go to the street. And we're going up and down this. We're going down this street, and we get to uh, a rectory in a Catholic church, and we played this game: uh, who was pope, um, and it, 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 which was a little game my senior companion had taught me, and pope mm-hmm. meant who was going to do the door approach. So you did it every, uh, you know, every other, who's the Pope? Uh, you're the Pope. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Knock, knock. <laughs> and I'm so, so, so we get to the rectory door and I'm the Pope and I don't want to be the Pope. <laughs> I want him to be the Pope. We're going to go talk to a Catholic priest. I don't want to, I, I just don't want to do it. it. To me, it's like a total complete waste of time. It's like, let's skip the, Let's skip the rectory door. Let's skip the nunnery, mm-hmm. and uh, which is on either side of the church. And let's go. Just go to the next house, and I'll be the pope. And he goes, "Nope, we prayed. This is the block. We're knocking on every door." Well, I said, "Well, then you be the pope." He says, "Okay, I'm the pope." So <laughs> we get to the door. The Catholic priest opens the door, and I'm just standing there, and I'm really not paying attention. But I sort of pick up what my companion is saying. He says. I'm Elder Burbank. This is my companion, Elder Conforto. He has a message for you. <laughs> I, was, I was so upset. I'm looking at him, and in my mind, I'm going, I'm not the Pope. You're the Pope. Why are you doing this to me? You're th-. And I just said, would you like to, I, I, I just wanted to get kicked off the doorstep really quickly. So I said, would you like to know uh, more about the Mormon church? And he said, oh, sure, come on in. So we get in. He says, now, what was this about more insurance? And I go, oh, no. no. <laughs> I said, would you like to know more about the Mormon church? <laughs> you, you realize I'm a Catholic priest? And I go, that's what I told the Pope. He's sitting right here. <laughs> I told him this. He, he says, well, he says, I'll tell you what. Um, it's Saturday. I have a homily I'm doing tonight. Um, this is, uh, we're celebrating St. Peter's week. Would you come to church tonight? Uh, Absolutely. So we get to church. We're sitting on the back row. He gets up there. He goes through, um, kind of the rituals. and, And at that time, and in that congregation, uh, they were speaking Latin. Hmm. I, I knew what was going on. I was telling my compa- companion um, uh, about what was being said and the, you know, the waving of the, the uh, incense and, hmm. and so forth. And, and then he got to his homily where he was, he was talking and he was talking in English and he says, I had an interesting experience today. You wouldn't believe it. I had two Mormon missionaries knock on my door. <laughs> and they're right there. And they pointed and, and everybody turned around and I could see my companions 
sinking in a chair. I mean, he was, he's my height and now he's, he's down to my sh- top of his head is at my shoulder. And I'm thinking like, yeah, whatever. And, um, he said, and they're going to be knocking on your door and here's the deal. They're going to talk to you about, uh, Joseph Smith and prophets and the book of Mormon. But I'm here to tell you the last prophet of the church was Peter. And upon this rock, we shall build this church. And this is the church that Peter built this church, not that church. So when they come, be polite, but reject them. And I'm going to show you how to do it right now. And here it is. Elders, if the Book of Mormon is true, show me the golden plates. And of course, we didn't respond. And he says, and of course, they don't respond because it can't show you the golden plates because it doesn't exist. It never it, it existed. They're fine people. Be kind, um, but don't let them in your house. Just don't let them in your house. And, uh, and that was the, and my companion was so mad. He says, wow. okay, let's, let's go. So I said, no, we're not. You got, you, you got us into this and you transferred the Pope thing to me. So we're going to stand at the front door, the exit, the only door you can go out of two big double doors. Mm-hmm. And we're going to welcome everybody out to church. So we did, we stood on either side of the door where the priest would normally stand. And he was really quite upset at us and on the side of the chapel there was a rectory door and he went into the rectory door and slammed you know door slammed and i'm like thank you for coming to church today we'll see you out in the neighborhood thank you for coming to church today see you out in the neighborhood can't you know mm-hmm. every once in a while somebody would whisper like oh i'm so sorry our our priest did that that was not cool <laughs> and it's okay it's, it's no problem but we'll you know we'll knock on your uh, on your door unless you want to tell me where you live and give me your address no 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 you you know, if you just happen to find me, I'll, I'll be very nice. Okay, fine. And uh, the whole place cleared out, and there was a young priest, Father Joyner, who uh, approached us and said, gosh, I'm really, uh, really sorry. And, uh, you know, I don't know anything about Mormons. And I said, well, you ought to. And I'm, I'm happy for you to teach us about the Catholic Church. And uh, and would be happy to teach you about the Mormon Church so that we have better understanding of yeah. each other. And he said that would be great. So we we started teaching him and another member of his uh, faith. And um, the other member of his faith was a young man that we had knocked on the door who was there that day, and we had taught him the word of wisdom. And he uh, and one of the things we were asked to do is when you taught the lesson, you ask, do you have do you have any any of these things in your home and we'll be happy to take them? And he says, well, yeah. So, you know, he had pipes. So he's giving us all of his pipes. Mm -hmm. He's got cart cigarettes. He's got bottles of booze like it was like unbelievable. And we. We, we have to put all this stuff under our, our raincoats because it's raining outside. And we, uh, honestly, we, we look like we weighed 500 pounds <laughs> and we're just barely hanging on this stuff under our coats. 
And we walk away from his house, which was a couple blocks from that church, walk in front of the church, walk to the corner. And on the corner, opposite corner coming towards us are two nuns. And I tell my companion, like, for goodness sakes, don't drop anything. And of course, <laughs> as soon as I said that, a bottle of booze dropped out the crowd <laughs> on the ground and it, and it rained. booze all over it. He must have dropped 15 bottles out from under his coat that all came crashing uh, around as the nuns walked by us like, oh, yeah, you guys don't drink, right? (laughs) And off to the uh, church, and I ran after the two nuns and said, no, 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 we don't. Somebody in your congregation, we took the booze from them, and and, and you know, who was that? And I tell them the name and he goes, oh boy, he has a drinking problem. I'm so glad you got that away from him and blah, 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 blah. And I said, yeah. And if you'd like to learn more about our faith, we, I'd be happy. Really? Yeah. And you could teach me about being a Catholic. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it turns out, you know, uh, Father Joyner joined the church. He was a young priest. He became uh, Elder Joyner and served a mission in the meantime, uh, there was two uh, sisters, and one was Sister Mary, and they both joined the church. And Sister Mary and Brother Joyner married in the Washington D.C. temple. So that was a you know that was my first kind of foray into a, an interesting series of of things that happened to me while I was in that is incredible. Wow. Now, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too far, but I remember you also mentioned something about uh, a Jewish rabbi joining the church as well. Can you tell us about that? I served in Brooklyn. Um, it's a very, very Jewish um, community, and I had two things going on at the same time. One was a doorman at the Essex Hotel in uh, downtown New York, and um, Jacob, who was the the rabbi, and we were teaching uh, both of them at the same time, and they were both sort of surreal events. My mission president was David Lawrence McKay, the oldest son of the prophet David O. McKay. Oh, wow. And uh, taller than D- David O. McKay, but very... Uh, similar. Our mission home was next door to the French embassy Hmm. and part of Gone with the Wind was filmed in that mission home. It had the first elevator uh, in the city. It was a stunning, it was a stunning piece of architecture inside. I mean, honestly, it looked like a temple inside Hmm. and the dining room looked like a medieval castle and stone and (laughs) it, it was it was just really, um, really quite stunning, quite, wow. quite beautiful. Uh, in fact, it, I got stuck it, because it was the mission home uh, in New York City. Many of the general authorities would stay, uh, and it was five stories tall, six stories mm-hmm. tall, five stories. Um, many of the general authorities would stay there, and eventually, I became a mission assistant and. I had an experience where I got stuck in a little teeny elevator the size of a small closet with um, uh, Elder Packard, oh, wow. member of the Quorum 12. 
who had nothing better to do for 15 minutes while we we're stuck nose to nose to interview me, which was very, very, <laughs> un- very uncomfortable because there's no way of getting out of that, that, um, that el- uh, elevator. Anyway, um, the, the doorman at the Essex came from Nigeria. Uh, his name was Alfred Durbin. He had a, a cousin that also named Philomena Dotsi. And uh, I, obviously they were um, uh, African-American mm-hmm. um, and had come all the way from uh, Nigeria. And he had kind of a, an English accent. He had a beautiful mm-hmm. smile. And every time I walked by the door, he had the smile. And I got, you know, and anyway, I handed him a Book of Mormon because every once in a while I would see him reading a book while I, on a stand while I was there. And every time I would walk by the hotel, he would ask me about the book and we'd have a discussion. And then we started um, teaching him. Um, and this is where this became a real shift in my whole thinking about teaching and conversations and, and studying and personal revelation, because I, we taught him and he wanted to be baptized. And this was before um, uh, blacks could hold the priesthood. Mm -hmm. And this was a a great concern to me personally, because I had, you know, there was nothing in the manual, no discussion about this. And, you know, and I, I had no idea how to approach this. I call up the prophet's son and go like, you know, he'll know. And so I called my mission president up and I said, look, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm teaching this family. They're lovely. They believe in the church. They're ready to join the church, but I I don't know how to tell them about the priesthood. And I think that this might be um, an issue and a concern and, and I want to be sensitive. And and Mm -hmm. so what's the, what's the, what's the rule? And he said, Elder Conforto, were you called by a living prophet to serve in this mission? Yes, I was. Do you believe in the power of revelation? Yes, I do. Well, go get it. Like, yeah, well, that's why I'm calling you. (laughs) No, this is your investigator. You were called to find him. You found him. Now you teach him. So figure it out. And then call me and tell me what you did. Hmm. So I, I, I happened to be, I don't know what I was doing. I was reading in the old uh, Testament and it, I saw something that I've read a thousand times or an observation that there were 12 tribes and the land of Israel was divided into 11 parcels and the tribe of Levi was the tribe that held the priesthood and they didn't need land because they were in every part of Israel serving the other tribes and they were running the synagogues and they were running, of course, the temple. And it, and I, I looked at that and I thought, isn't that interesting? One tribe served all the other tribes with the priesthood. Then I had this thought like, well, the priesthood is, the priesthood is not a ladder because nobody, you know, in a ladder, you're climbing to the top, you know, you mm-hmm. seek mission. Everybody that I, knew or understood that became a member of the quorum of the 12 or became the prophet of the church. None of them wanted that calling or sought for that calling and looked at it as a burden in their, in their life, which it appeared to me to be a burden in their life. This does not seem to be an easy uh, thing. Um, Obviously, if you get the calling, you never feel worthy. So that's 
never a comfortable uh, feeling, especially a calling like that. You have people that stand up and, you know, and uh, sustain you as prophets, seers, and revelators. That's like a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And so as I, as I thought about this, I went to him and I said, you know, there was a time the tribe of Levi was the only tribe that could hold the priesthood and because, because priesthood means service. Today, every tribe can hold the priesthood except for one tribe, and you happen to be a member of that tribe, and so I have to serve you. And he looked at me for the longest time, and I thought, okay, here it comes. I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm like going to get thrown out the window here. And he looked at me, he says, so let me understand this. You, as a white man, have to serve me as a black man all the days of my life. Is that right? Yes. This is a religion I can believe in. That was it. <laughs> and awesome. uh, he was baptized, and then he moved back to Nigeria and became uh, a bishop in Nigeria. Oh, wonderful. Um, and, I, you know, when they could hold the priesthood, that was a... a um, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Jacob on the other hand was a whole nother, a whole nother kettle fish because <laughs> when you, when you do that, you are, you are really rejected massively. Mm-hmm. That is like, that's what, that, there's a bridge to no, um, re, uh, return. And that, mm-hmm. those, uh, discussions and that journey was, um, was quite, quite, uh, significant. But the conversion was found in a core belief that we have, which happens to be a core belief of Judaism. Mm-hmm. It was found in the temple. Mm. So now to explain that, I go to Jerusalem. I go to the Welling Wall that is not significant to me from a religious standpoint. I, I went to the River Jordan, you know, where. Christ was baptized and others. I went to the Sea of Galilee. I went to the Mount of Beatitudes. I went to the tomb. I went to Calvary. I, you know, I went to the Mount of Beatitudes or or the um, uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. I I went to all of the places that you would think that, and it was great. It was wonderful. And the Welling Wall means virtually nothing to me Mm -hmm. in one way. Um, it means something to me because it's the foundation, the pedestal upon which the temple was uh, erected. And I see a young Jewish rabbi and I go to him and he's wearing all black and he's got um, a prayer box tied to his forehead and another leather strap that wraps around his uh, left arm and uh, with a box that he holds over his heart and he's reading his Torah and he's rocking. So I wait till he gets done rocking and he, he seems to be done. And I say, can I ask you a question? He says, oh, I, I, I would love to answer any question you have. And I said, uh, great. I, I, I've always wondered why, why do you guys always wear black? I, I, I served as a, a missionary in, in New York City and I noticed Hasidic Jews were uh, always in, in black. He goes, oh, you must be a Mormon. I go, yeah. He goes, oh, we, we wear black because we're in mourning. Oh, well, why are you mourning? Well, because we don't have a temple. He says, now I'm going to tell you something that only a Mormon will understand. I go, what's that? He says, 70% of our religion, we cannot live without our temple. Hmm. That's why I'm born. I was so stunned by that 
remark because I knew when I was young, when I first went through the temple, that there's a whole part of my religion that I didn't know that mm-hmm. I just stand. And I've spent a lifetime going to the temple, still trying to understand it, still gaining information. Every, every experience I have in my life that week, that month, that year, there'll be a key word or a phrase that means something entirely different to me in the mm-hmm. temple than it did years before because of what I was going, um, going through. Yeah. Uh, there were, I lost two sons many years ago. And when I, after they had um, passed a year from each other, at, every time I went to the temple after that, I found something related to that event that impacted me significantly mm-hmm. that allowed me to know the importance of that life and the importance of the concept of forever families and the importance of me living a life that was worthy for them, for me being their dad. It became a big deal. My desire to be even better because of their passing increased a thousand fold. Mm -hmm. And so in that tremendous sorrow, you know, I found the courage and the faith to live my religion beyond what I would normally live it. So anyway, I go to, he, he, uh, I said, why do you rock? He says, oh, because we represent a flame and you know, a flame has heat off of it and the heat goes to heaven. So when we are praying, we represent the flame and we want our prayers to go to heaven. Hmm. In that moment, everything that seemed odd to me was now unbelievably beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. It was stark. I, you know, I would wash and rock and, and it seemed odd to me. And then every time I've watched and rocked after that, I saw the beauty in what they were doing. So anyway, I go to the temple wall. I have my list of names, just like we do in our temples. Right. I put the list of names, 200 of them, in the crack of the wall. I put my hand on the wall. I look at everybody else. They got their forehead against the wall. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll do that. The stone is both warm and cool to my touch. And as I put my head on on there, I hear a voice in my right ear. It says, pray for his coming. So I turn around to see who in my group had made the suggestion because my immediate reaction was like, like, that's a really good suggestion. And I turn around and there's like nobody there. And I am, I am not pleased at all because I have never heard an audible voice. I've never prayed for an audible voice. I didn't want to hear an audible voice. I didn't want to share with anybody that I heard an audible voice because it sounds a little crazy, like the person's a little touched and I don't want to be touched. And everybody I knew who heard an audible voice somehow became a martyr and that (laughs) didn't seem very good idea for me. So like, it's no audible voice. I don't want to see an angel appear of light in my room. I don't need any of that. I'm happy to live in, in faith. I don't, I don't need anything proven to me. So uh, I don't want to be anybody of significance and I certainly don't want to be a martyr. So I put my other hand against the wall and I lean my head against the, the wall and I hear it again and I turn around and there's nobody there. And 
I sat there and thought and thought, why on earth would I pray for his coming? What? Uh, and I had thought about all the prayers that I had ever given, and I couldn't recall specifically praying for his coming. Hmm. You know, I would start by asking things like, you know, asking for the things I need. Well, I, his coming was not one of the things that I needed or thought that I needed. I was thankful, but he hadn't come, so I would thank him for his his coming. You know, when you're overcome by the Spirit, there is a kind of a almost a floating sensation, a oneness that you seem to to have. It's almost unexplainable. I I liken it to uh, like hot Seven Up running through my veins. That's what it feels like <laughs> to me, and I'm overwhelmed because for the first time in my life, I understood that I missed the most important prayer that I needed to utter, which was pray for his coming. Mm. And I, as I sat at that wall with my head against it, I thought of everything that I ever wanted in my life, everything that the world ever needed in its existence, all happened as a result of his return. Mm. If we want peace in the world, if we want harmony in our family, if we want to be void of war and rumors of war and not be motivated by money and all the evil uh, that we see in the world and all the things that seem so important vanish in a flat second. All of it goes away. It is gone the second he he returns. Mm -hmm. And I walked away from that wall so ashamed that I missed the most important core belief that I have the most important reason for the temple being there, the most important reason for having living prophets, the most important reason for being a missionary, the most important message that I could bring to people that everything that you want and ever needed in your life is going to happen as a result of this coming. And it's sort of like looking at the Book of Mormon and seeing the people prior to his coming and the unbelief that they had or the casualness they had and, and the shock and awe that it was when he finally appeared and the 200 years of peace they had because of that, that single event mm. and the thousand years of promised peace that we have when he finally returns. Yeah. So, anyway, when I think about, uh, uh, Jacob and his conversion to the church. This is why Mormons have such a great um, affinity for Jews and why Jews have a great affinity for Mormons. In mm -hmm. fact, in Jerusalem, because of what we did uh, building BYU Jerusalem, if you know Jews in the city who have been there for a long time, they refer to Mormons as Rocky Mountain Jews. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's awesome. So all of that, my whole mission then circled around a, a final kind of event when I was serving as the assistant to the pre president and we would have family home evening. And as you know, in family home evening, you bear your testimony, all the missionaries do. And I was bearing my testimony and we never knew who was going to walk in from general authorities of the church. And into that, 
just as I was getting towards the end of my testimony, Spencer W. Kimball, the living prophet of the church, walks in the room and sits in a chair six or seven feet in front of me. Wow. And five things that I always do in my testimony. In fact, if I don't do anything else other than just do these five things, that's testimony enough. I don't need to get up and stare, give a story and then, you know, whatever. I have five things that I personally feel I must do. They are the following. I know that God lives, that he hears and answers our prayers. I know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. I know that the Book of Mormon is the word of God. And now I'm standing before him and I'm looking him in the eyes. And I know, and at that time I said, and I know Spencer W. Kimball is a living prophet of God. And I stared at him and he stared at me and I stared at him and he stared at me. And I just looked at him with great intensity. And I saw the smallest, tiniest, little nod, just a small nod. Mm. In that second, I knew with his integrity, he would have either said, nope, I'm not, I'm a frog. <laughs> Sorry, I gave up. But he didn't do that. He just nodded in a very humble way. It says, yeah, I am. And I didn't want to be, but yeah, I am. And then I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Mm. That that and many other experiences from being shot at with a shotgun, chased with a blowtorch, hit in the back of the head with a uh, brick, having guard dogs sicked on me and sending me to the hospital, being spit in the face more times than you can imagine by New Yorkers on the streets, all made my mission the greatest single growing, learning, spiritual experience of my life that changed my life and the lives of, of, of many people that I came in contact with because he will return again. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, you come home from your mission, um, you take a couple different jobs and you get into the corporate world, into the technology sector, uh, you start a family, you move down to San Diego, um, I know I'm I'm skipping a lot really really quickly, uh, but uh, you have such a fascinating career. What what happens next? That led me to working uh, on creating the industry standards for barcoding the UPC code. That led me to uh, go to 119 countries around the world. That led me to the X.12 standard, the EDI standard, that, which is the underpinnings of the internet, it led me to start uh, uh, in a startup firm, uh, building uh, retail systems for retailers, which led me to be a senior VP for GE Worldwide, which led me to buy my software company that I sold to them back, which led to you know an enormous amount of money coming into my life when I sold it to a, a group in San Francisco, which led to, you know, just creating all sorts of companies and, and, uh, and so forth. Things that are, are way, way beyond, um, my ability, just mm -hmm. like on my mission, everything that I did was way beyond 
my ability. And I always had to rely on something in my life that was greater than me. And throughout all of this, one of the things that became really important to me was I wanted everybody to know I was a member of the church mm-hmm. and always came out in conversation, every conversation, people I didn't know, it didn't matter where I was in the world. I weaved in the conversation that I was a member of the church. Most people knew it. There was a reason that I did it. It wasn't to do anything other than let people know that who, what religion I was. And I wanted them to have an expectation of me that I was going to live it, mm-hmm. which is why I told it often to make sure that, that no matter what I was, uh, living it and that I was always, my life was representing the church and the church was representing the God who created it, that it, it all. And so it never left me that I was in one way, a messenger of his, mm-hmm his message, whether in my own family, whether in my aunt, you know, and the best message is the one you live, not the one you speak. And so, yeah. I, you know, I, I was very active in, you know, living my religion. And that led me to be very social and a series of rules that I had in my life about inviting people over to my house for dinner who were not of my faith. And is that, you, does that come naturally to you to invite people over to dinner? Uh, you know, once you do it, 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 you wonder why you never did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why you just didn't, you know, once you, it, it, it it's never a big deal if you're going to make a meal to add a couple more ingredients and cut a couple more potatoes yeah. and buy <laughs> you know, whatever and invite, um, people over. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Really good missionaries never look at people like, you know, this person will make a great bishop or I'm, you know, I'm going to introduce this person to the, to, um, the church. And to me, it was, how do I create a position where somebody asks me for it rather than me just walking up to them in an unnatural way and saying, uh, you know, I think you should read this book or I'd like to give you this as a, as a gift or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm not criticizing passing out materials and, and so forth. And, and every situation is different and people get, um, you know, an impression that they need to do something and it works. Mm-hmm. What I did yeah. see was having people in my home. And so I mm-hmm. had a massive collection of the Book of Mormon in every, I, I bought the Book of Mormon in every language and I had it prominently displayed. So people were always like, what is this? Oh, this is the Book of Mormon and, you know, in 68 languages. Like, wow, that's really, that's really, but you know what? I was giving them away all the time. You know, it, it was the interesting thing as I would have these books and somebody would need one in Vietnamese and somebody would need one in Korean and somebody would need one in Russian and Farsi and Tagalog and, you know, and like, okay, here, I got one. And then mm-hmm. I would go, uh, replace it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I write my testimony um, in it. And that led me on to the journey of, with all of my, I have 30 grandkids, but with all of my grandkids on their baptism day, and, and as well as my own children, of handing them their first set of scriptures with my testimony in it. Mm. 
And, uh, and that became a big deal, um, to me. So I, you know, I don't know how many book of Mormons have my testimony in them, but I never gave one out that they didn't know me personally and mm-hmm. didn't consider me a friend first before I handed them, handed them the book. Yeah. I wanted them to know that I was a friend first. So having yeah. people in my home, they would see my artwork in my house. Mm-hmm. There, there, I have a lot of, uh, it's mixed artwork, but I have a lot of uh, religious, be- beautiful paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really the, uh, about the things that I talked about, the value systems that I had that were not religious in nature, but you would think that a person who talked that way and reason that way must, you know, is trying to be a good person. So there's a word that I think about all the time, a word that you can use to talk about somebody, but there are very few people that you can use this word for, and it's righteous. Hmm. And I want you to think about all the righteous people that you know in your life, truly righteous. And they're, it, it, they're just very few. So, you know, I have this thing in my mind that, you know, to be a righteous person is, a, you know, a process looking for another version of you. So, you know, I'm a very young 70 year old. On May 15th of this year, I got on my Facebook page. I'm very active on Facebook. And I said, hey, I'm releasing version 70 of me. Uh, And tomorrow I'm going to be working on version 71. And I'm like deadly serious about this because the person I was when I was born and the person I was when I was 10 is completely different. And 10 to 20 and 20 to 30, 30 to 40. And I was amazed at 30 to to 50 or 40 to 50. I I was a different person. Mm -hmm. 50 to 60, I was a different person. I thought for sure by the time I'm 60, I'm I'm pretty set in my ways. I turned 70 and I look back at 60 and I'm like, no, I, I'm a completely different mm-hmm. version of me. And like all software programs, they got bugs in them. And every once in a while, version <laughs> 17 comes out. That idiot. I don't know. You know, he just comes out and I got to apologize. You know, that he, you know, and I know that I got a bug repair that I got to fix in version 17, one in version 39, one in version 54, you know, all of the, all all of the bugs, but becoming a righteous person, I think is a lifelong journey. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that anybody will ever call me righteous, but I tried to figure out the definition of a righteous person. And I came up with this, a righteous person is so righteous that they are not aware that they are righteous because they cannot see the faults of another without seeing their own faults first. Hmm. And that, I don't know when that version of me is coming out, maybe 80, 85. (laughs) Maybe I kick the bucket before I get there. But what I just described to you is being good without trying to be good, unaware that I am being good or righteous and focused on not correcting everybody else and not rendering my opinion to everybody else, just focused on finding the best possible version of me. Mm. And that to me is the definition of the greatest missionaries on that ever were on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. They, they believed in what they believed 
and then lived it. So I've often thought about Christ. Why was Christ who he was? Why out of all of them was he different than all the rest of us? And I've thought all my life about this and it recently came to me. The reason that he was so different from all of us is nobody loved the father more than him. Mm. And it was reflected that he would be obedient in all things. And that was a demonstration of his love. And it turned out that love then became the most powerful force in the universe. Mm. And that's why I love him. He, he, he became who he was because of this love for his father. And imagine being the father and having a, a son that loved you that much. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I have one last question. If there was one thing that you would want your posterity to know about your missionary service, what would that be? Mahatma Gandhi had a statement one time that I really liked. He said, if a man thinks he has a superior faith, then let him live a superior life. Um, I, I think that the thing that my missionary experience throughout my life has taught me is that I have an obligation to live a superior life because only superior lives can change the world. And that's the purpose of our mission. That is our calling to change, change the world so that we can all return back to God, who is our, our, our home. And, um, you know, if the church is as true as we think it, it is, we have to be very careful about what we say. We have to be very careful uh, how we live, how we talk, the cadence of our uh, voices. Everything that we do, everything that we are is a reflection of him or someone else. And if he is our master, then um, I, I hope that people would look back on me and say, that guy tried all of his life to have the countenance of Christ in his life. Mm -hmm. He wanted people to see that before they saw him. I love that. Well, I've uh, so enjoyed hearing about how you have overcome huge obstacles, uh, making it out on a mission after being homeless and and your uh, wonderful missionary experience in New York and all the things that you've accomplished after your mission and, and how you still uh, uh, have a missionary mind uh, and keep inviting people over. And, and uh, I love that. That's, you know, normal and natural is, is what we talk about with missionary work. And, and that I can't think of anything more normal and natural than sitting around a table and, and, and talking and, and letting, letting them ask the questions. I, I just love that. Um, and I know that this is, this episode is going to be meaningful for, for a lot of people, but yeah, thank you so much, Dennis uh, Conforto for yep. coming on today and, and, and speaking with us. Yep. Thank you. Well, being a natural missionary is never work. That's why it's not missionary work. If you're a natural missionary, you never have to work at it. it, it it's much easier. So thank you. Yep. Thank you so much. 
so much. And thank you for asking me questions that forced me to uh, reflect on my life and create within me a desire to find uh, the best version of me that will be released on May 15th, uh, version 71. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, a uh, very big thanks to my new friend, Dennis Conforto, and uh, thank you to Dave Johnson again, a former guest who connected us. In today's Missionary Minute, I wanted to share a little bit about why we've had such a long break uh, on the podcast. Uh, my plan was to uh, take a break for the summer and start again once school began. However, we had uh, a, a tragedy hit our family on August 6th. I received a phone call from an officer in Winnemucca, Nevada, uh, notifying me that our, our sweet daughter, Maggie, had just been involved in a rollover automobile accident and had not survived. It was three days after her 23rd birthday. Uh, to say that you know we were heartbroken doesn't really quite convey the, the grief that we experienced. Maggie was traveling from Utah with a friend to a wedding in Sacramento. Her friend who was driving Maggie's car actually survived the accident. I've never had anything hit me so hard. It literally brought me to my knees as I spoke to the officer in Winnemucca. My world stopped. An immediate void was in my life and in my heart. And it's a pain so deep and profound that I honestly have had trouble getting back to many of the things in life uh, and moving forward. Uh, I've spent countless hours just staring at the wall or staring at the ceiling. I've prayed and I've prayed. Uh, the only thing that has brought me comfort for weeks after the accident was listening to General Conference, both the talks and the music. I've never had to go through something like this, um, and the grieving process is is uh, something that's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how long it takes. It's it's my first time experiencing this, and it's uh, it's been tough. It's been a, a real challenge, uh, just uh, the emotional and, and drain that it's, it's had on me. But I'm moving forward, um, and, and luckily I've had a lot of uh, people reach out and encourage me to, to keep the podcast going and, and have shared with me how meaningful it's been to them, and, and I really appreciate all the messages that I've received. Fast forward now to, to November it's been uh, three months now since Maggie's accident, and uh, the University of Utah has put something together that's really cool. I'll, I'll give you a little plug for this. They have uh, uh, created a scholarship, a memorial scholarship in Maggie's name um, in the communications department where she was uh, uh, going to school. She was uh, writing for the, the school newspaper there, the University of Utah's uh, Daily Chronicle. Um, if they can raise $25,000, the scholarship will be endowed and it will move forward in perpetuity uh, to support other uh, students in her name. And um, I'll put a, a link in the show notes. It's something pretty neat and pretty special that the, the University of Utah has, has put together. I thought that maybe I'd share a few words uh, that I had written for her funeral. I had uh, the hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour, in my mind a lot as we drove down to Winnemucca, Nevada. And I think it was my plea to God. Um, I need thee every hour. Who else is there to turn to? Who else can promise the resurrection? Who else can promise eternal families? We need thee. Oh, we need thee. Every hour we need thee. It's only through the grace of God and through the infinite atonement of, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we may all rise from the grave never to die again. That is my bright and shining hope. That is the comfort that I have divinely received, which has brought me peace to a troubled soul. That is what keeps me going. 
Everything else seems trivial. Families are important because we are part of the great family of God. It is my prayer that each of us and Maggie on the other side of the veil may find peace, tranquility, solace, and comfort that is so desperately needing in troubling times when our burdens seem beyond our ability to bear. So those are some words that I shared at Maggie's funeral. And now here I am, three months later, and I must carry on. Life has lost a little bit of laughter with the passing of our daughter Maggie. But I'm committed. I'm committed to carrying on the gospel path until we meet again. Well, that's about it for today's show. If you like the show, please subscribe so that you're notified when new episodes come out. And I will continue to release uh, episodes as time permits. And we'd really appreciate it if you could uh, share this episode on social media so the word gets out there about the, the podcast. And thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, wax strong in the gospel, my friends. 